Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hi, I'm Stella Garber. I'm co-founder and CEO of Hoop. We are a software company that helps teams reduce collaboration overload, help um, with better decision-making faster without meetings. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Stella. Can you maybe tell me what's the most exciting thing you're working on these days? You know, it's all too exciting. I feel like doing a, a tech startup right now, it's like, I don't even know what a good analogy is. It's like you're you're going on a run and everybody is throwing baseballs at you and you're just trying to like keep going straight and dodging all of these baseballs because every day there's some new AI advancement or tool or competitor. It's like the, the market is just so much faster than it used to be. And there's just so much noise. There's a, a lot of noise and a lot of, it's just, it, it's very exciting. It's, it's very uncertain. It's, I don't know, I've done the startup thing a few times now. And right now feels like kind of an exceptional time to be a founder. That's a really good way to frame it. How do you kind of cope and manage some of the fast-pacedness and uncertainty that kind of comes from being a startup co-founder? Well, I think you have to be, one of the nice things about having done this a few times is having focus and sort of um, understanding that you have to be really thoughtful and focus on what you're good at and the unique value that you and your product are going to provide and try not to get distracted by everything that's going on around you with competitors or with new advancements. I think that's the the real thing right now with AI. It's like, there's this really, um, and you know, we started Hoop about a year ago and before you know, chat GPT came out in December and now every company is an AI company. And so I feel like we're very curious and interested in how we can incorporate AI in a very thoughtful way in our, in our product experience and help people specifically. I think there's a lot of opportunities with, um, decision-making in AI, but at the same time, um, it can't just be sort of tacked on or done in a way that's very, derivative. So I think that's the that's the real sort of trick is to think about what your competent core competencies are, double down on those, and use sort of the noise that's coming around all the time as inputs into ideas or suggestions, but not the sort of changing changing course every few months because of something that came out. Absolutely. And I want to dive in a little bit more on your thoughts about AI and decision-making and how it kind of weeds into kind of team dynamics and leadership. But before mm-hmm. I even dive into that, for people who might be less familiar with Hoop, how did you come up with the idea for Hoop? And Yeah, well, it's interesting. So I have been working remotely for almost my whole career, and I've been writing and sort of advocating for the future of the future being very remote work or whatever you want to call it, digital first, virtual first work um, for, for a very long time. And my previous role, I was the 
at the head of marketing for Trello. And I was the first uh, remote executive uh, at Trello and the first marketing hire. So very early on the team. And we built out the company to be remote first. Remote first is such a weird thing. I don't even know what the terms are anymore. But basically that we did have a, a headquarters in New York, but most of the team, like I think at its height, was like 70% remotely distributed. And so, you know, having done that for a very long time, I was there for seven and a half years, and we can talk all about that. But, you know, we were very thoughtful about building out remote culture and remote practices. And then when the pandemic rolled around and there was this, uh, like, crazy adoption of remote work because of the, um, you know, because of the necessity of it you sort of see how people are trying to replicate in-office practices remotely and end up being sitting in Zoom meetings all day, being burnt out, having all of these notifications pinging in your face all the time, and just sort of not having had the opportunity to be very thoughtful and process-oriented with remote work processes. So I saw an opportunity to kind of bring together both the experience of building out a remotely distributed team over a long time and some of the practices and knowledge that we had um, established in addition with a lot of the product principles from Trello. Um, Trello was fun to use, didn't feel like work, really intuitive, lightweight. So we, uh, my my two co-founders were also at Trello. We were, the three of us were all on the original executive team. We sort of wanted to bring those two things together and into a new product in a new company. And one of the things that we did was we went around and interviewed over a hundred knowledge workers last year about what was making them so miserable because remote work, I mean, you know this, when done right, it, it's so freeing and so great, but, you know, sitting in Zoom for eight hours a day is not great. And feeling tethered to your phone is not great. So we were asking and trying to figure out what were the things that were keeping people stuck and not really realizing the full potential of remote work. And what we found was that there was all of this ambiguity in interactions, like people would ask you for feedback on something, or they would go into a meeting where they thought a decision was going to be made, and then they would come out of it and they didn't have any idea of how a decision was made, whether it was made or who was making the decision. We also saw that the next frontier of, uh, or the next uh, iteration of remote work was asynchronous work. And this was like a totally new concept to me. Um, And I just absolutely loved it. I thought the most, all the research shows that getting into a flow state is what what prompts the most creativity, what helps you get the most work done. And then being able to put that aside and go off and and live your, your outside of work life, whether that's families or hobbies. And so we wanted to build software that helped teams reduce the ambiguity, starting with decision-making and help them work more asynchronously. I will say we're, we're pretty early and we're still testing a lot of different things. So that's why it's a little bit it's probably not as crisp of a definition as it could be right now. <laughs> no, I love it. Um, and you said so many awesome things. You said so many like important things there about like kind of getting the flow state and really managing like your own energy, your own time um, and letting, yeah, all of that is so, so important. And I feel like in some regards, like the pandemic basically 10 x how mainstream remote work has become. But on the other hand, it kind of gave it a kind of a bad like there was also some like bad tendencies where a lot of companies like 
only started to understand what remote work was out of a necessity. And then they just tried to just re re recreate the office environment remotely, which as you and I both know, doesn't work. I'd be curious to hear kind of going back to what you said before, right? It was talking about kind of decision-making in AI and then decision-making when it comes to async first work. Do you think there's any overlap between like AI decision-making and like decision-making in async work and how did those two can kind of blend together? Yeah, there absolutely is. I think that um, human decision-making is fraught with all of these biases and issues. And we, there are some things underlying and some underlying practices that make it even worse. For example, a lot of decisions happen in meetings. Meetings are maybe the absolute worst place to make a decision. Why? You have things like groupthink. You have things like power dynamics. And there's been all of this research that shows that brainstorming in a synchronous group setting, you do not get the best ideas out of um, if that's your goal with brainstorming. So I think what we see and what there's all these amazing books, that's one thing that we discovered is there's all this really rich literature around best practices and science, decision science about how to make better decisions as a group in a business setting, you know, and one of the big things is writing everything down, writing down the scope of a decision, writing down who has decision rights. Decision rights refer to what people's roles are in a decision. And you can have things like who the actual decision maker is and who's contributing. Some people will use frameworks like DACI or RACI. There's a million of them to help with this sort of thing. But the basic idea is that you're trying to reduce the ambiguity around a decision. There's also um, something around really thinking about the scope of a decision, like how, if this is a reversible decision, how much time should we really spin our wheels on this? So having, um, writing all of those things down forces you to think about them ahead of time and allows you to be much more objective and analytical. And then the other thing that we found was that if people had the opportunity and the space to actually think about these things, like to me, it's funny, the decision science is not rocket science. And yet people have such a hard time actually implementing it. And part of that is because the modern tooling that we're using at work doesn't, it, it's not async first. It's like Slack is great. I love Slack. I love cat gifts. And there's, there's definitely a place for Slack. The problem is that Slack can't be everything. And there's so much noise in Slack. And so I think when it comes to something as important as making decisions, communicating decisions, being able to sort of take that away and and isolate it and be much more thoughtful about it. It really, it might sound like it's more work and too much process, but what you'll find is that it actually helps you be more objective and, and work faster because you are um, being a lot more thoughtful about your decision-making. And AI there's this great opportunity with AI where we can we can sort of take away some of the human biases and and unearth data or facts that maybe we hadn't considered previously. There's actually research that shows that one way that AI can help with decision making is that it shows options for decisions that a human may not have previously considered. And so I think that there's a really big opportunity with um, with AI to make better decisions. I think the challenge is humans are complicated and messy. 
And AI is not the silver bullet solution to everything. So I think there's a question of, of how humans can work with AI to make better decisions, what that software is going to look like, how will you make it usable and relevant and, um, and a habit in everyday life. So there's just, it's just a really fascinating space to be in right now. So much opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. You said so many interesting things there. One of the things that I kind of grapple with as someone who's a remote worker, has a small team, and also has gotten a lot more into AI recently, the things that I kind of grapple with a little bit is like, you think there's like, I think AI can become like super important in decision making, but like, how do you offset the potential for, let's say, someone to use AI to kind of outsource their thinking? And like, are there ways to kind of like put those guardrails in there? So it's like, you know, you're doing, you're getting the best of AI without necessarily like, you know, not writing things down, which as we both know, like writing well is also a mechanism for thinking more clearly. Definitely. And that's why I think it's definitely a tool. I, at first, it's funny when AI came out and I tried to use some of the AI writing tools, I was like, this is a joke. This is like, a, a, an a, you know, intern level writing. And what I found, which I think is that what most people find is that it sort of helps you get unblocked from ideas and helps you. There's, you know, research with creative writing where if you can just write down a bunch of ideas, it's better than just staring at a blank page and you're not going to come up with any ideas. Just get all the bad ideas out first and then the good ideas come after that. And so I think that AI can help you generate all the bad ideas and then get to the good stuff faster. So it's funny too. We used, um, we just had an offsite for our, our small team, and we thought it would be fun to have ChatGPT plan the offsite and um, sort of outsource some of the decisions to ChatGPT as an experiment. And so, as a quick example, we we're spread out across the country, and so we were trying to pick a location. And so, rather than try to come up with a random list of of cities, we asked ChatGPT, given certain constraints, like being close to major airports, not being super expensive, and ChatGPT came up with a list of recommended cities for our offsite. Now, we had not considered a couple of the cities that it came up with, and ultimately, we went with it, the first two recommended cities, one was Chicago, which is where I live. Um, and then the second one was Minneapolis. No, ChatGPT didn't know that we already had an offsite in Chicago last year. So, and maybe we could have written a better prompt that said exclude these cities, but, but Minneapolis, we were like, oh, Minneapolis, that's a, that's an interesting option. We had not considered nobody lives in Minneapolis. It's sort of equidistant flying. It's not going to be as expensive as like you know, a New York or a San Francisco. And so we ended up having our offsite in Minneapolis and it was awesome. <laughs> Everyone was like, why are you in Minneapolis? We're like, chat GPT told us to. Um, but ultimately we had to make the, the decision using our human minds, but it was helpful. Yeah, that's such a cool and creative way to use chat GPT. Going into your offsite, what's kind of your philosophy when, philosophy when it comes to how to structure an offsite to get in to get the most value from it? Yeah, so we have we have a very strong philosophy on offsites because having worked remotely basically my whole career, I've I've participated and planned a lot of offsites. First of all, I think offsites are so key and one of the big 
One of the big things about remote work that people sort of assume that you never or you don't value FaceTime or getting to know people as humans. And that's absolutely wrong. In fact, some of my favorite memories uh, from my Trello days were the creative and fun offsites that we had. We did things like indoor skydiving. We did Napa wine tours. We went Broadway shows. We traveled around the world. It was like such amazing experiences that really bonded and built psychological trust and safety within the team. So I will say that we we acknowledge even at our small startup, we actually have a philosophy that we work 80% asynchronously and 20% synchronously. And part of that synchronous time includes FaceTime. So we do quarterly offsites um, right now. That will likely change as the company grows. But um, it's something that will always remain important um, to us. So what's our, our, our philosophy is that there's a two maybe big goals around coming together. The first is um, that you want to utilize the synchronous time very thoughtfully from like a company, what you're trying to accomplish standpoint. So for us, that means doing a lot of pre-work. We plan a couple of weeks in advance what the sessions are going to be. We do the creative brainstorming outside of the offsite so that when we come to the uh, offsite, we have done all of this thinking so that the time we spend together can be used much more strategically. So it takes it takes some legwork, but I think if you're going to go through all of the hassle of traveling and, you know, there's nothing worse than getting to an offsite and you're like, okay, why are we here? What are we doing? So we take it very seriously to do a good amount of pre-work and plan the schedule ahead of time. And then on the flip side of that is the social element. It's the fun, it's trying new things together, trying new foods. I'm a big fan of, of doing offsite planning sort of collaboratively. So um, uh, at Trello, we would always have like a food captain whose job was to come up with the restaurants or food options and we would have an activity captain. And then, you know, that would sort of rotate based on who wanted to do it or who's so, so everyone felt like they had a part to play in the offsite being successful. We are we're doing that at Hoop as well, but again, we're a much smaller resource-constrained team. So I think there's maybe slightly less social fun time for us because we are in this really, you know, like uh, have heads down building, got to get it right uh, startup mode, but it was still really, really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and going back to your last quarterly offsite in Minneapolis. Oh. Can you maybe talk about like one of the kind of the sessions you had planned and kind of go into detail and like what you did in advance versus what you did there and then kind of what you came away from with it? Yeah. So my co-founder, Justin, um, he is the the chief product officer. He led product um, at Trello as well. He We did a whole session that was sort of about what the next features of our, uh, the next iteration of Hoop should look like. So ahead of time, we... Uh, he sent us some questions and we in Notion each individually uh, without looking at each other's work came, answered the questions and um, were really sort of thoughtful, took time around it. And then when we arrived there, he had a set of creative tasks that we had to do. So we did one, I think that we're um, come from like a design sprint 
uh, background. So for example, we did an exercise called crazy eights where we, we folded a piece of paper into eight parts. And then we had like five minutes to quickly draw, you know, eight different variations on certain themes um, that we had come up with on sticky notes. And then, you know, we gathered around and everyone shared their eight drawings and we tried to see what was, you know, the, the, the common themes around it and then come to some conclusions based on that. So it was really, um, again, sort of optimizing for sync time type of an exercise that would be hard to do remotely. Like we literally had um, a bunch of sticky notes. This was before the the crazy AIDS exercise. We had a, a bunch of sticky notes that people came up with based on prompts. And we were grouping the sticky notes on a on a table and then coming up with themes. And that led to the this crazy eights exercise. So again, you can do all of that remotely. And I certainly have, you know, using tools like Mural and Miro, but it, there's just something about doing it in person that I think is, you know, if you, if you have that option, it's, it, it's a good one to do in person. Yeah, absolutely. I'm the biggest fan also of someone who's worked remotely first as an employee and now as a business owner um, as well. Like, you know, there is something to be said by like, you know, making sure that you are meeting up with key people on your team on a, you know, at least somewhat regular basis of ideally at least a couple of times a year. Shifting gears a little bit, kind of going back from your days at Trello, where you literally started as like, the, I think you said the first marketing hire and then kind of becoming an executive and now kind of launching your own startup with Hoop. Can you maybe talk a little about some of the most surprising kind of like mindset shifts you had to have going from being kind of in a bigger organization at Trello to now being a co-founder of a startup? Yeah, I mean, it's completely different. And I think, um, you know, I was at Trello for seven and a half years. And and when I joined, um, my mandate was to build out the marketing team. And it was one of those experiences where the company was growing so fast and changing. Uh, it felt like a different company every, you know, six months. And then in 2017, we were acquired by Atlassian and I stayed on for another um, four years and led the marketing team, led the integration. And so that was a completely different experience. So I feel like coming out of it, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to do next. And that's like a whole tangent, which I will not go on. But the I've always loved startups. I love doing early stage startups. I love the messy ambiguity, the possibility, the innovation. And so the idea of being able to recapture some of the energy of being in a really early stage um, startup with people, with my co-founders, uh, Justin and Brian, you know, it was really exciting. I, I thought that I would do a startup again if it was the right people. I think the people are literally the most important thing. And so being able to team up with Justin and Brian was like a dream come true. That being said, uh, and I think that's such a, such a core important piece of uh, the startup journey that probably earlier in my career, I didn't appreciate as much is just how important it is to find that your co-founders are really aligned in terms of what they want out of life or what they want out of the startup, what they want, the stage that they're at in life, you know, what kind of company you want to build. We spent a lot of time talking about that before we even wrote a line of code. So, and I think that's very much a repeat founder type of a, a situation. And that would be 
a, a lot of advice that I would share with other people who are thinking about going the founder right route is to de-risk a lot of the early relation founder relationship founder alignment stuff. And so, but then after that, in terms of shifts, I mean, I went from an established uh, brand and company product that people loved, huge, you know, distribution that we had built over many years to literally like nothing, right? <laughs> like a, co- a, a co- product that doesn't exist, a company that doesn't exist, nothing. Um, you know, we had to buy a don- domain, we had to pick the name. And so I think some of it is really exciting. Some of it is really daunting. It's most certainly a huge change in mindset because you're also having to do everything yourself. So when you're a founder, you have to be both the manager, the leader, the visionary, but also the person who executes the, the IC and, and that makes you that that's a very different mindset than being part of a larger company where a lot of your job is um, managing relationships and managing priorities and 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 looking at the status of things and making sure projects are getting done. There's a lot of complexity. And I think with the startup, there's a, a refreshing simplicity because the only thing that matters is getting to product market fit as quickly as possible. Yeah, that is so well said. Going back into the fact that like, you know, kind of being both the manager, the visionary, and also the executor, I see, how do you kind of structure your time so that you're making sure that everyone is aligned to getting the product market fit as fast as possible, but also knowing that, you know, you are, you know, in some regards, much more simple, much more simple process, but also there's a lot more multitasking that has to happen. Definitely a lot of managing of time and expectations. I think that some of the core vision setting and alignment actually happens during our offsites. We also have monthly check-ins that are sort of big picture check-ins. We call them our monthly mediocrity moment, which is to say that we want to make sure that we're not doing anything uh, with mediocrity. And so we do like uh, kind of like a questionnaire and a meeting to make sure that everyone is still aligned on, on the big picture moving forward. And then the rest of the time is is much more focused around execution. So we try to have short sprints around an experiment from the pro- from a product standpoint. We're const- from the marketing go-to-market standpoint, I'm building up our, our machinery around content and thought leadership. We're also, you know, we're, we haven't made the investment in um, developing our brand quite yet because we are still figuring out exactly what the product is going to be long-term. And so um, it's, it's a funny chicken and egg thing where obviously I really believe in the power of content and brand and I want to, and actually I've been, been an angel investor in a lot of startups and I always, my advice is always to get started early because you can't just wake up one day and say, okay, now marketing. I mean, you can, but it's going to be really hard. So there's a balance of um, wanting to spend the right amount of time and energy in all these different areas, um, but also being very focused on the only thing that matters, which is getting to product market fit as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to something you said there, where it was like about your monthly check-ins and that's almost kind of this, like making sure that you guys are aligned and on the same page. Um, Can you maybe talk a little bit more about like what goes on in one of those monthly check-ins? Yeah. I mean, we do it mostly asynchronously. 
And I think that's a real theme for how we're running the company is, you know, we structure our day so that there's only a two hour period um, during the day we call our sync time, which is time that everybody should be available for meetings and to be answer things in Slack right away. And the rest of the time is asynchronous, you know, do your work. We assume you're going to get things done and we get things done you know, but it's not like set working hours. And we also work a four day work week, um, which is, which was something that was really important to us um, from the beginning. And so I think that our, our sort of working structure mirrors this, this idea of 80% being asynchronous and 20% being synchronous. During the day, we have this sync time where we're, um, you know, we can have meetings, talk to each other. We still think that's obviously very, very important. We have a meeting at the beginning of the week to kick things off. We have a meeting at the end of the week, which are which is Thursday afternoon for us. And as sort of like different different types of content goes in, in different in those meetings. And then the and most of it is also we we try to populate that stuff asynchronously so that during the meeting we can do we can spend the time in, in thoughtful ways that are better done synchronously. So to answer your question, our monthly mediocrity moment, it's it we answer a set of questions like what are the three big priorities for this month? How do you feel about how quickly we're going? And I don't, uh, there's, there's a, we sort of have a, a page in Notion that we use as a template and everybody independently fills it out. And then if there are any points of divergence, we will use a meeting to talk about those things and make sure that they get, you know, figured out. I think the whole thing with asynchronous work so far that we've learned to work well is that the synchronous time is to come together flesh out any bottlenecks or ambiguity, disagreements, divergence, and then people can go off and execute and feel confident about the work that they're doing. And then again, as they're doing that work and something questions arise, we can then use the sync time much more effectively. The sync time is limited. So you have to be very uh, everyone has to be thoughtful about how they use the sync time. And as I'm saying this, it probably sounds like a lot. It probably sounds like too much structure. But I think that having a little bit of structure in place prevents a lot of ambiguity and a lot of bad practices like that sitting in meetings all day and not using your time effectively. So yeah, that's that's a little bit about how we work. Yeah, I love it. And having that truck, having those kind of guardrails in place makes it seem like makes it so that you're team is actually way more efficient than it would have been without having those things in place. Yeah. And I, the other thing I'll mention too, is like, we're very small and already things have broken as we've hired, um, as we've hired our sort of founding engineers, we went from being three founders to now a, a team of six. And so we're very flexible in terms of making sure that our tooling and practices and everything um, changes as we grow. Like it's not, if it, no longer makes sense to have some tool or some meeting, or we need to add a meeting in there. That's totally okay. I think that the big thing is though, that we're aligned on the principles of how we work. And that actually came from our very first, um, I had mentioned, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about the kind of company we wanted to build. We also wrote our values down in, or we worked on our values from the very 
first, before we even incorporated as a company, we had aligned on a set of values. And one of our values is that time is precious. And so we try to be very thoughtful about how we are using our time, especially since we are both asynchronous and a four-day work week. So the time is limited and we have to be very, we have to honor, honor that uh, commitment. Yeah, I love it. I want to get into like the four-day work week, but I feel like that maybe might be another episode down the line. Going back to what you were saying about kind of async first and bringing on a couple of new team members who are kind of founding engineers. What was your process like to make sure that the people that you are hiring are on board with being able to work well asynchronously? It's a good question. So it's funny because one of the things that the pandemic did was that previous to the pandemic, you know, I had built out a remotely distributed team at, at, you know, at Trello, we had all um, done that. We'd figured out ways of hiring people remotely. And one of the things that people always said at conferences, whenever I would talk about managing remote teams is that you had to be in person to hire good people. And I was like, no, (laughs) you don't, you just have to have a good hiring process. And I think that the pandemic help people see or help remove that that sort of prejudice or you know force people to try something new that they wouldn't have otherwise considered. And so I think when we were designing the hiring process for these uh, first few engineers, first of all, you know, it's really hard to hire to hire employees at a very early stage startup. There have to be all of these things that are aligned in a person's life for them to even consider joining a startup and specifically one that is just basically the founders. You have to be excited about the mission of the company. You have to be excited about the stage of the company. You have to be willing to take on a lot of risk, especially if you're coming from a big company. And so that, you know, first that's all before you even consider something that's like, you know, the asynchronous style for us. And also coming from Trello, where we saw very early on that hiring remotely was a huge competitive advantage as we were competing for the best engineers. And, you know, we could say, oh, you're in Minneapolis? Like, I remember we had a handful of uh, these really, um, I think they were called Google developer experts, and there were only like 100 in the world, and like three of them lived in Minneapolis, but we had hired like two of them because there weren't that many companies that were willing to hire remotely back then. And so I think that the both the four-day work week and hiring asynchronously are and were a huge competitive advantage for us in terms of hiring in a pretty tough job market, um, especially with all of the uncertainty. I think people were thinking, you know, that the job market is maybe easier than it was a year ago, but I would argue that was not our experience because people were very worried and scared and joining a startup in uncertain times can be, you know, it can be a challenging, a challenging ask for a a spouse or for a family. So anyways, um, we had a whole process. Writing was a big part of that process. 
interviewing just on Zoom meetings, also a big part of the process. And then another thing that we, um, that I'm a big fan of is doing skills-based interviews. So with engineering, that's easy because it's obvious that you do like some sort of a coding challenge or, and you do it live over a Zoom meeting. And so we had a couple of those in our interview process as well. So I think just being thoughtful about designing the interview process so that we both got to know the person and made sure that they were excited about the space, had the right skills, um, were excited about the way that we were working. Those were all things that we screened for. Yeah, absolutely. Having that like really thorough process that you guys have sounds like it really pays off in spades. Before we wrap up, I always like to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Cool. Uh, so... What's one book you'd recommend that any remote founder or remote first marketer should read? There is this really amazing book called Collaboration Overload by Rob Cross. I found it randomly in my library, but it's basically um, Rob Cross is this organizational researcher and he's identified that making collaboration much more easy over with technology um, and just like really good um, intentions has created this crisis where most people, most knowledge workers are in this era of collaboration overload where, you know, they're the bottleneck. There's all of these requests. People don't can't say no or decline projects or emails. And, and what is the cost? What is the human cost of that? It is a fascinating read. I think people when I read it, it was like such an eye opener. I was like, exactly. All of these articles about distractions and the knowledge worker economy, like this, this is a a huge problem. And I think that um, when we were doing the thinking, initial thinking around hoop, that book really helped um, clarify a lot of ideas. I love it. I have never heard of that book before, but I literally just like made a note to go buy it on Amazon. Another kind of lightning question I had for you is what excites you the most about AI right now? Honestly, the possibilities of AI and just all of the different applications. I was yesterday, I was judging um, a business plan competition at my, um, at my old uh, college. And one of the pitches had to do with like using AI to help math teachers grade math homework because math teachers spend like upwards of three and a half hours grading math homework every day. And what if you could use AI to help with that? And the person had developed some, you know, app where you could take a picture of the, um, take a picture of the student solving and showing their work on the math problem. And then you run that through OCR. And then there's like an LLM that's trained on like algebra feedback for homework. And I was like, that is so cool. (laughs) Like I had not even you know, that's not my context. I'm not in like education. So what an interesting and awesome application for um, AI where the student gets detailed feedback, but the teacher gets their time back to do other stuff. So I don't know. I just think that the possibilities are so exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such an interesting use case that I would have never even thought of. And if you could have dinner with any famous person, who would you choose and why? Do they have to be alive? Yes. Oh my gosh. I don't even know. What a great question. Any famous person alive? Um, I think I would pick 
the first person who came to to mind for me was Sheryl Sandberg. I just feel like I would love to talk with a person who is like that accomplished, also had a family, had lots of different facets to their career, just like seems like a very interesting person and really, really smart. Um, So yeah, maybe, maybe Sheryl Sandberg. Awesome. And it's been really great chatting with you, Stella. Where can listeners find you online? So um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Startup Stella. And also, um, we're definitely looking for users and specifically people who are really into the idea of working more asynchronously, reducing meetings. Um, the URL is hoop.app. So um, sign up for our waitlist, and I would love to get more people trying it out. That is such a great domain name. And thank you again for coming on the Remote Work Tribe podcast. Well, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.